This week on the show, we're debunking some previous demits with Clara Systems and the article they wrote about it. Then we have an article about, please don't force me to log in and all the silliness that comes with uh, creating accounts for pretty much everything these days. Exploring FreeBSD services with Ruben Nerd. Failed product designs, a laptop with seven screens, and uh, what's a permissive license is what the FreeBSD Foundation asks in their latest article. And we have a nice beginning of the year laugh as well in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 546, Debunking FreeBSD Myths, recorded on the 7th of February 2024. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. This is kind of a fresh new episode, like pretty much any episode we're doing. And we have some headlines, like every time we're doing these, except we're doing uh, interviews. And Apart from when we don't. Yeah, <laughs> headlines, apart from when we don't have headlines. It would be a surprise if we don't do these things. Then people are like, oh, what's happening? They're changing the format. The, head the headline is no headline. Yeah, headlines. Like, it, like if you have any title, doesn't that doesn't the first one become the headline no matter what you do? Mm. It yeah. It can't be like you can't start with the subtitle. We'll put it there, yeah. And this time it's debunking common myths about FreeBSD. And guess who wrote this or where this is coming from? Clara Systems, of course. And they know a bunch about FreeBSD, and they guess I guess they're in a good spot to say what is a myth about FreeBSD and how uh, the reality is to debunk those. Okay, they start with. FreeBSD, a Unix-like operating system, is often shrouded in myths and misconceptions. Originating from the Berkeley software distribution, hence BSD, FreeBSD is renowned for its reliability, performance, and advanced networking features. However, several myths have arisen over the years, clouding the true capabilities and characteristics of this operating system. In this article, we aim to debunk these myths and shed light on what FreeBSD truly offers. Myth number one. FreeBSD is not used by major companies. A common myth is that FreeBSD is not used in large-scale commercial co environments. This is far from the truth, as many leading companies like NetApp, Juniper Networks, Cisco, Netflix, Sony, Metify, and others rely on FreeBSD for their platforms. These companies chose FreeBSD for its reliability, scalability, and robust networking capabilities, integrating it into their core products and services. Companies like Juniper and Cisco use FreeBSD as the foundation for their own customized operating system. Their, um, for example, Juniper's June OS, Junos, uh, used in their routers and switches, is based on FreeBSD. These companies leverage FreeBSD's advanced networking features, stability, and performance. FreeBSD's rich networking stack is highly customizable and scalable, making it ideal for high-performance networking equipment. And features like packet filtering, routing, and VPN support are crucial for network infrastructure. Sony itself has used FreeBSD as the basis for the operating system in some of their PlayStations. So FreeBSD's flexibility allows for customization to meet specific hardware and performance requirements for gaming consoles. FreeBSD support for embedded systems makes it suitable for customer electronics or consumer electronics. Its lightweight nature and ability 
to run on obvious or on <laughs> various hardware architectures, making an excellent choice for embedded applications. So they call it debunked. The adoption of FreeBSD by several large companies highlights its reliability and sustainability for commercial use. Myth number two, FreeBSD is only for advanced users. One of the most prevalent myths about FreeBSD is it suitable only for advanced users of, or system administrators. While it's true that FreeBSD offers a plethora of advanced features, it's also incredibly user-friendly. With detailed documentation, a supportive community, and an easy-to-navigate configuration system, FreeBSD can be a great choice even for those who are just beginning their journey in the world of operating systems. So they list some subpoints here. They have comprehensive documentation. Uh, they have some sub-bullet points here, but I just keep the highlights. Uh, they have comprehensive com documentation, ports and package management, and learning and growth opportunities. So they also debunked this myth by saying FreeBSD's extensive documentation and user-friendly setup make it accessible for beginners as well as seasoned professionals. Myth number three. FreeBSD has a small community and limited support. The myth here is that FreeBSD has a small community and limited support options might come from its comparison with larger, more commercially popular operating systems. These mainstream OSs often have vast user bases and formal customer forum support or customer support structures, which can overshadow the community-driven model of open source projects like FreeBSD. And they list there the uh, couple sub-options here. The first is global and diverse community. The second is an active development and contribution environment, extensive support through mailing lists and forums. The fourth is community events and conferences. And the fifth is inclusivity and welcoming nature. They also have this debunked with the sentence, FreeBSD's global community offers substantial and effective support, debunking the myth of limited assistance. Myth number four, FreeBSD lacks software support. Another common misconception is that FreeBSD suffers from a lack of software availability. In reality, FreeBSD has a richer repository of applications and software packages known as ports. The ports collection offers easy installation of software and includes thousands of applications from desktop environments to server applications. They debunk that with FreeBSD's ports collection provides a vast array of software options catering to both desktop and server needs. Myth number five, FreeBSD has poor hardware compatibility. There's a myth that FreeBSD struggles with hardware compatibility, especially with newer hardware. However, FreeBSD continually updates its hardware support. While it may not have the same level of support as some mainstream operating system, it still offers broad compatibility with a wide range of hardware, including both older and newer components. And they have that debunked with the sentence, regular updates in an active development community ensure FreeBSD maintains good hardware compatibility. Myth number six, FreeBSD is not suitable for desktop use. Some argue that FreeBSD is only fit for server environments. This myth overlooks the fact that FreeBSD can function exceptionally well as a desktop operating system. It supports various desktop environments like KDE and GNOME, and it's capable of handling everyday computing tasks smoothly. That has the debunked stamp as well. FreeBSD's support for multiple desktop environments makes it a viable and efficient choice for desktop users. Myth number seven. FreeBSD development is slow and outdated. The misconception that FreeBSD's development is slow and outdated stems from its long history. However, FreeBSD is constantly evolving with regular releases and updates. Its development cycle, uh, sorry, <clears throat> its development cycle is rigorous and focused on stability and performance, ensuring that each release maintains the highest standards. The list subpoints as regular releases and updates, focus on stability and performance, continuous improvements and modernization, as well as open source development model. 
they have that debunked. It's previously's development cycle prioritized stability and quality, leading to a reliable and up-to-date operating system. So uh, that uh, is a quite a long list, and uh, there's a couple of things more in the article, but they conclude that one with the myths surrounding FreeBSD often stem from misconceptions or outdated information. As we have seen, FreeBSD is a versatile, secure, and user-friendly operating system with a strong community backing. It continues to evolve, maintaining its relevance and efficiency in both server and desktop domains. By debunking these myths, we hope to provide a clear understanding of FreeBSD and its capabilities, encouraging more users to explore this powerful operating system. I think I think you could get a puppet Benedict, and then I, I don't know if you remember this. There was a talk at um, EuroBSD One in 2017 called "My BSD is Better Than Oh yours. Yes, yeah. Um, we're an in Paris, OpenBSD developer and a FreeBSD developer bounced off each other. Um, you could get a puppet. And you could give a similar yeah, talk, right? With the, the voice. Then I learned the to be a ventriloquist, and I'm like talking to myself. That would be so. I've got, I've got the conceit, right? <laughs> like we have enough to do a sitcom pilot. We just need some story. Yeah, <laughs> and I think we're there. Yeah, I'll, I'll train. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have uh, a blog post. Um, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. Um, uh, by Yuhamati Santella, uh, Hamati.org, uh, and it's called. Please don't force me to log in, which is something I feel very strongly about. It feels like everything these days you need to create an account to log in and use them. Philips Hue announced you need to plug your home's light automation to their cloud, even if you just use it locally. They claim it's for security. Up until this point, this is a quote, um, up until this point, the mechanism you've used to identify who is the owner of the Hue system and can do this, control your bridge, is by physical access to the device and pressing the button on the bridge. This approach is inadequate going forward, and we need a more robust way to identify the owner of the system and enable them to manage their system. The Hue account is how we will do this. If someone breaks into my apartment, then pushing a button on my Hue is the least of my worries. Then being connected to my online account is a way higher threat. Yi, the Finnish public media service company, announced in 2024 to use their mobile app to watch the TV shows and movies from the streaming service Arena requires login. They do it so they can provide better algorithmic recommendations. All the content is free as it's public service and will keep the browser user log free of login, at least for now, but it adds another step of having to log in whenever any of the devices forgets my login. I installed Adobe's Acrobat Reader to my dad's phone during Christmas to help him open PDFs he received via email. It can be used without a login, but it keeps pestering him about the login every time, confusing my dad who's not sure what services need to be logged into what and which not. It's a goddamn PDF reader. No need for accounts or logins. Arc browser requires you to create an account so they can send you update emails. I had to dig into the Internet Archive page since Arc deleted the answer from their site somewhere between me writing and publishing this post. Uh, why do I need an Arc account? Arc currently requires an account so the team can communicate with members about product updates, feedback, and questions. Arc also has collaborative features like easel and multi-device syncing, both of which require an Arc identity. Once again, perfectly fine for opt-ins, but I don't want one. Windows 10 and Windows 11, I've been really bad at pushing constant please log in screens so that they're annoying to use. Annoying to users who are not sure which pop-ups on their computer are safe and not and what they mean. I don't own Windows PCs, but I help family who have those and I hate it. I was excited to test the warp terminal until I require until I learned it requires a login. Why is a login required for a terminal app? The primary reason is that login allows us to build cloud-oriented features that make the terminal have a concept of your stuff and your team's stuff, for example, block sharing. 
This is the same reason other collaborative apps like Figma and GitHub require a login. Identity is the basis of building cloud-native apps. That said, we understand the desire to try Warp before logging in and are exploring product experiences that will allow users to preview Warp before sign up. It's a terminal. All the extra features like sharing and AI can be great, but why make everything go through it rather than making it extra for those who need these features? These examples can go on and on. What's common with all is that they are all services and software that don't need logins and accounts. They are extra features forced everyone instead of opt-in for those who want to use those features. I'm sick and tired of this more and more trend with everything. I understand that businesses building software is tough, but this is not the solution. On an adjacent note, social media platforms becoming the default causes a lot of problems too. Facebook, Instagram, X, and others make a similar move after years of luring everyone and their dog to their platforms. A lot of companies like pubs and restaurants went with the crowd and had only pages on these platforms instead of building their own sites. And now customers can't see opening hours and menus without signing up to the platforms owned by mega corporations. Recently, I applied for a job that had a LinkedIn link as a requirement to apply. Not a, if you want, you can share your LinkedIn, not a share your link a link to your CV, a required membership to a social media platform owned by Microsoft. These are examples of accounts required on third-party platforms. It sucks too. Please stop with these hostile account requirements. Make They make your product worse for users. Yeah, and of course you have to store all these account information and uh, login information, the passwords, that keeps password managers happy or in business. Yeah, so welcome to the modern world. Wait, wait, sorry. sorry. Oh no, you were commenting. So they have it. They have they they have a newsletter linked at the bottom of this blog post, and the newsletter requires you to log in to sign up. Oh, okay, with an account. Okay, <laughs> all right. We just close the book here and move I'm on. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's like to manage and um, like to unsubscribe the subscription on the email list. Yeah, yeah. But why would you? It's just a million. Just have an anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. It's so difficult. Like, I understand why these accounts are required. I understand the pushback. There's no balance between the two. How can you have a product that, like, you want people to buy the stuff you make, and you can't do it without accounts and things? And I think we're just getting a culture yeah. clash. I mean, um, I signed up for stuff where I've never received any kind of email or promotional stuff, and I can't recall that I opted out of their newsletter subscription. So. I got a text message from my mobile provider today. Um, I get about three text messages a month. Um, and the text message from the mobile provider said they were going to send me updates occasionally to tell me about the latest scams with no way to opt out. <laughs> and I don't I don't need this. Uh, disabling SMS would probably stop most of the scams arriving. The, that's the solution. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, they try to be helpful by being not helpful. Let's check the news roundup because we have Ruben Nerd back and he <laughs> has been blogging about exploring FreeBSD's service basics. So service is the service framework uh, that it uses to start, well, daemons and services. And he writes, a service in BSD land is a rc.d script that can be invoked on boot or by the root operator after booting. These are table stakes for any online guide, but I often see people making the same mistakes or not doing things in the most efficient way. Uh, I think this might be due to Linux people porting their guides without understanding BSD specifics. I thought it was worth taking a quick look. 
So starting a service. You start a service by executing by uh, well by executing its rc.d script. Like NetBSD, FreeBSD's default location is here, etcrc.d slash, for example, openNNTPD. Oh, OpenNTPD, there's a, one less end. Okay, so in addition, services you install via ports may reside under local. So that's user local, etcrc.d, OpenNTPD. And a shortcut to these is the service command, which Douglas Barton wrote for FreeBSD 7.3 and has uh, or was ported to NetBSD 7.0 by Adrian Steinmann. This would look familiar to those uh, of you from Penguin Land, so service open NTPD start. Uh, but he here is where you might run into your first problem. Cannot start open NTPD. Set open NTPD enable, that's the message on the screen, to yes in etcrc.conf uh, or use one start instead of start. So that even tells you what you should do. Operating systems like Debian will tend to enable and start services as soon as you install them. This will uh, this will be great for instant gratification, but the BSDs are more cautious. Personally, the last thing I'd want for a network-facing service is to have it enabled before I've configured it or locked it down. As it suggests, you can run one start instead of start if you want to launch the service immediately, but for a persistent service, you'll want to enable it. To manually enable that, you enable a service by including a line in FreeBSD and NT, uh, NetBSD's conf, rc.conf in etc. By saying open NTPD or service underscore enable equals yes. And on NetBSD, that's simply open NTPD equals yes without the enable part. Another location you can write files to enable services is in etcrc.conf.d. Like all configuration directories, this can be useful if you want to keep your rc.conf file the same across a fleet drop-in specifics into a separate location. There are even more places which can be invoked at different times, refers, uh, yeah, referring to rc.local man page for details. But how to write to these files? Online guides would tend to suggest you write these lines manually or do something like echo open NTPD underscore enable equals yes, uh, you know, greater, greater than sign to rc.conf to append it to the file or, uh, yeah, the same one more time for uh, NetBSD. Or if they're a bit more clued in, they do a printf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> printf person s backslash n open NTPD enable, uh, you know, greater than greater than etcrc.conf. This usually works, but there are better ways, smarter ways of enabling services. For example, you can run Devin Teske's RC, uh, sysrc tool. This updates your rc.conf in an idempotent fashion. This means you don't end up with duplicates or contradictory lines if you accidentally add config twice. So you run sysrc openntpd underscore enable equals yes. But it can also configure much more and can even append config to existing lines. This is where it really shines. sysrc update underscore motd equals no, for example, or sysrc jail underscore start plus equals, be careful, plus equals is important, LB, Minecraft, and Hatsume Niko. Okay. Uh, Keen-eyed readers have just uh, spot an issue, though. While you typically enable and start a service with the same name, they don't always match. Did you know you enable or disable MOTD with update MOTD instead? Another example is MariaDB. Sysrc MySQL enabling was yes, huh? right? Not MariaDB enable. And then you run service MySQL-server start. It's important to note that sysrc echo and printf will dutifully write whatever config you request regardless of their validity. There's a joke in there somewhere about writing tenders. Ask me how I know. <laughs> okay, nice. An even smarter way to enable services. 
In this case, it's usually better to enable services with a surprisingly named enable command. So you can run service open NTBD enable and service open NTBD start. This requires the RCT script to have been written with the appropriate configuration, though I've yet to come across something from package source or FreeBSD ports that doesn't have such config. That means these RCT scripts don't have an enable function like this, at least from the ones I've tried. I'm continuing to grow my personal NetBSD knowledge, so if there's an equivalent tool for it, let me know. And he concludes with, could this entire post have been just that last code block? Probably. But I enjoy reading when other people follow a train of thought and explore something, rather than just doing a couple lines wrapped in boilerplate to sell ads. Happy BSD daemoning. Yeah, I, I didn't having know all these listed is good. I, that's new. I, I didn't know. I need to, I How do you do it? Most oh. I, I I just edit rc.com mm. because I'm an animal. Um but I, I know SysRC exists. I managed to break it last year. Oh how? Um I I got it to put quotes inside a variable and then it couldn't it couldn't modify the existing variable. Uh. Like I got I like I yeah, like I nested it somehow. I can't remember what I did. I was trying to look at a notebook just now. Mm. Uh, but I didn't know about the enable option. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll use that. Yeah, I think they added I'm that a while ago, and I guess it hasn't caught on that much yet. That's cool. I like that. Oh, it does have side effects. Yeah, I mean, do you just edit rc.com for Benedict? Uh, yes, that's what I did for a long time. And uh, I also edit uh, RC .conf.local so that uh, a system update doesn't override it or I don't have to merge this file. So that's another trick uh, you can use. But uh, You can get around that by never updating. Anything. <laughs> um, yeah. My main problem still is that I some variables have underscores in them and some don't. Yes, so that's also like... Set the default router for something Service wrong. something dash something unrecognized. Service underscore something recognize but when i run the enable thing then it wants the underscore or the dash and it's kind of like which is which so i go and do uh, rc dot d and and you know less that thing so i see what the shell script does and or yeah it, that's a bit of a pain point yeah but, I, yeah not too much i mean m most of these services I, that i have i know and run for years <laughs> I, I think if I had a time machine, I would I would fix a few things, but I would definitely harmonize um, gateway enable and the syscontrol forward, IP dot forwarder, mm. so they'd be the same. Yeah, because I never remember one of them. And is there an underscore in there? I can't remember. Why there isn't an underscore in default router? And it really annoys me. Anyway, um, next up we have a a blog a blog post. I've, I'm not sure. It's in the form of a blog. I'm not sure what this is. It's at core77.com and the post is written by Renault in tech. Failed product designs, a laptop with seven screens. And nothing I say will do this justice. You should go and look at it. Um, there are really seven screens. Such something so visual. It's very visual. Uh, a British company called Expanscape developed this monstrosity known as the Aurora 7. If you haven't guessed, the seven in the name refers to the number of screens. You're looking at four 17.3-inch monitors, the outer mo the outermost of which each have a 9.7-inch monitor perched upon them, a seven-inch monitor, a seven-inch touchscreen on the base, 
four of the keyboard rounds out the pack. Now, this is like me reading uh, Gypsy Moth Circles the Globe, but refusing to learn any sailing terms. Um, there's a lot of words here. So imagine a laptop, and then imagine a laptop, but it's an elephant, um, and the ears of the elephant are two 17-inch monitors. And then the laptop's also wearing a hat, and the hat is a 17-inch monitor, and the laptop's a 17-inch laptop. And then the ears of the elephant are, are both wearing hats. And then the the keyboard next to where a touchpad would be, there's also a touchscreen monitor. That's that's how you get to, to seven. It really looks like a it's, command center. It's absurd. It looks really cool. Um, I love that one photo is in an, an office which is quite well lit, and the other one is just in a completely soulless rental accommodation on a um outside trestle table. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing reportedly weighed at uh, twelve kilos. Um. 26.4 freedom pounds and would be made to order north of would and would be made to order for north of twenty thousand dollars with all those screens battery life was a problem offering just an hour of unplugged time but it was never meant to be a true laptop not at 4.3 inches thick so many units here and i don't know how big for it 10 centimeters thick it was aimed at people who needed to examine a lot of data and occasionally move their workstation. Imagine a research scientist or a repair technician whose attention was acquired in multiple parts of a facility throughout the day, for instance. And it's just a nonsense use case. It all folds up, by the way, because it's a laptop. There's a a step by step, a frame by foot. There's a photo story of it um, being assembled, and on the table there's food, and a phone. Yeah. Um, and flowers. In the end, there weren't enough takers, who knows why, and Expandscape went barely up at the end of 2023, but perhaps the surviving images of this behemoth will inspire future developers to design something more manageable. No less manageable, we need 12 screens. And then look at the phone next to it, it's like, why don't you just use that for video conferencing, or hook it up to a big screen and be done with that? <laughs> it's so funny, the phone is in the pictures, like, there's... A uh, power cable coming out of the laptop. Laptop is very generous. This is like a, um, it's a very thick computer. Mm. It's just PC. I don't know why they. Don't, why, why would? No, no one There's so many questions this. around this thing. It's kind of like how many people you could have on a, you know, you, if you do a video conference, you can have each individual pictures on a new screen, but why? At the, at the point where you're carrying twelve kilos of of laptop, yeah. you could just carry two monitors. It's certainly a downgrade for me. You don't. You you would only have three monitors, not um, seven. Mm. But I, I I can't. You I only cannot understand what this you is. Have, for. You have two eyes. How many screens can you watch at the same time and process that two. information? Uh, but you you always like one screen is just a YouTube video and another <laughs> one's like a, a Fediverse feed. And the rest is a screensaver. So that, that counts for two of them. <laughs> one of them is where you're meant to be doing work. One of them is a video call. Oh, that's, ah, that's okay. Four. Now it makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. one is distraction. Um, one screen is one screen is top, mm -hmm. of course, obviously. Uh, another screen is um, Grafana. Yeah. Um, another is compiled. Is that five? It's five. Mm -hmm. um, what would I use two more screens for? Uh, and one of the additional screens to get us to six, you have um, uh, an emulator of uh, a 1984 Macintosh. Mm -hmm. um, and then on your final screen, you just have some photos from your library. 
Ah, okay. Or you just create a lot of T-Muxes and, you know, divide the screen even more. I, I, can, I can make a lot of T-Muxes and I only have one monitor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, let's move on to a bit more uh, familiar territory. Uh, the FreeBSD Foundation has a new article out, what's a permissive license and why should I care? And their article is about, well, licensing and which ones are permissive and which ones are a bit more restrictive and start with open source is commonly accepted to be a term that describes a computer program with a licensing arrangement that does not restrict modification or usage. Open source technology is commonly positioned against closed source or proprietary technology, which is technology that is distributed under a licensing agreement that restricts usage and or modification in its totality. For example, if you have Windows or Mac OS, you're using closed source technology for your operating system. Under a closed source licensing arrangement, you have to pay for a license to use your technology. In addition, you cannot edit the structure or code of your operating system or install your operating system on another computer outside of the terms dictated by your license. With open source technology, you can do both. You are free to edit the source code of your piece of technology and you are free to redistribute the software as you see fit. Within the world of open source technology, there are multiple varieties of open source licensing agreements that dictate how a program may be used or modified. While software licensing is the subject of never-ending debate in this blog, we'll explain the more common example uh, of software licensing while pointing out their differences. The GNU, General Public Licenses and Copyleft Licensing, they list first. The GNU General Public License, also abbreviated to GPL or GNU GPL is a grouping of the most common open source licensing arrangements that notably covers Linux. The first GNU GPL license was written by Richard Stallman in 1989 to use with the GNU project. Stallman later popularized the term copyleft to describe the protection of free software, its perpetuity, or perpetuation, modification and distribution, particularly at, as it pertains to the GNU GPL. For complete definition of the concept of copyleft coined by Richard Stallman, refer to the GNU project's definition of the term on their website and check out Stallman's GNU manifesto for a description of copyleft as well. They have links to both. In essence, the concept of copyleft defines software licenses that are protective and reciprocal in nature, while the concept of copyleft is intrinsically connected to, based on, and defined by the creation of GNU GPL, we'll continue to explain GNU GPL is synonymous with copyleft for the sake of this blog. So in summation, GNU GPL and concept of copyleft as a result allows for anyone to use or edit software with one very strong and a strongly enforced exception. Everyone contributes to a GNU GPL license project or creates a derivative work of GNU GPL license project must upstream their contribution without exception. Because of their strong exception, or of this strong exception, many individual developers prefer GPL licenses for their sense of fairness and guarantees of openness and transparency. Detractors of GNU GPL and copyleft point out GNU GPL licensing is fairly complicated and ambiguous. Seriously, read the text of the GNU GPL license and being 2,242 words long and infractions of the license often result in legal action. Okay, that's that. Then they have permissive licenses as another... Uh, heading. Permissive licenses are a grouping of open source licenses that do not restrict modification or usage in totality. Under a permissive license, there are no exceptions that any works must be also contributed to the upstream. To this end, and in essence, a permissive license can be 
thought of uh, in layman's terms as do whatever you want, just don't sue us. Proponents of permissive licensing argue that there is no need to legally force users and contributors to contribute back to the upstream as the advantages of doing so outweigh any potential disadvantages of contributing to the upstream. And in addition, permissive licenses are generally more straightforward than GNU GPL licenses. For example, the simplified BSD license, a type of permissive license, only contains 101 word compared to the 2,242 word long GPU, uh, GPU, GNU GPL, of course. FreeBSD, the simplified BSD license, and why you should consider it. So here, FreeBSD is the most popular of the BSD distributions and is written and published under a license called the Simplified BSD License, also referred as the FreeBSD License. The Simplified BSD License is the simplest form of permissive license in popular use, and it contains only two clauses. First, the redistribution of source code must reproduce the text of the Simplified BSD License, its list of clauses, and its disclaimer. And the second is that redistributions in binary form must reproduce the text of the FreeBSD license along with these two uh, clauses and its disclaimer in documentation and other materials provided with the distribution. In layman's terms, those two clauses simply mean that a contributor or distributor must copy and paste the simplified BSD license onto any redistribution. By the same token, violations of the simplified BSD license are easily fixed just copy and paste the simplified BSD license onto any redistribution and you're all set. No headaches and no mess. Admittedly, the FreeBSD Foundation uh, that publishes this, uh, they're biased here, they say themselves, but the simplified BSD license is much simpler than the new GPL and the concept of copy left. The simplified BSD license makes FreeBSD friendlier to businesses who may wish to utilize FreeBSD within their technology stack, and it also makes FreeBSD friendlier to individual developers or entrepreneurs who don't have to risk the complexities of a lengthy licensing agreement. And the article concludes with, it is often said that in the world of software, there are two kinds of free, free as in free puppies and free as in free beer. The former isn't truly free because puppies require rules and responsibility. The latter is true free or is truly free because when someone gives you a beer there are no strings attached the simplified bsd license puts freebsd in the latter category no strings attached with the simplified bsd license everyone wins and it's just one of the many reasons to consider freebsd for your next operating system use case to learn more about why people chose freebsd check out drew gallatin's talk on how netflix tracked freebsd head releases in order to serve large amounts of data to customers with speeds of 400 gigabytes per second that's a link to this exact uh, article and netflix originally adopted freebsd for its permissive license and then realized freebsd is so much more than just a license okay that's uh, the overview in case for people are still wondering or need to distinguish those do you, do you think you could recite the BSD license, Benedict? The BSD license, uh, the terms, Yeah, I probably yeah. could recite it more than the GPL, which also I haven't looked at much. I don't think I could recite either. <laughs> well, not <laughs> But it does seem the, like a fun, the, it, it like a fun drinking sense. game. But I could yeah, guess like word by word. the gist of it. No, probably not. It's not... Oh, okay, required. okay, listeners. The next time we do a live show, which, <laughs> who knows when that'll be. Oh, I need have to recite no, We have this? no plans. No, no, not Benedict. No, a listener. Oh, even better. Okay. For a prize. There'll be a, it'll be a wonderful prize. <laughs> it will not be thought of the last minute by whoever's there. I, I won't be there. Okay. Um, we do, could do a public recitation of the BSD license. 
Oh, of course, like with more clauses, the better. With some drama in it, or some um, um, really boring um, legal text. No, 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 just word, word for word. word. For word. Okay. Um, we'll have the audience fact check, mm -hmm. and they can do an angry buzzer sound with it. Yeah, I don't think you'll manage ten words. I don't think anyone open. This is an open offer. Like anybody who wants this, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a gift. <laughs> <laughs> the next time we do a live show, so I at least have some time until then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, been... And we also have no plans for a live show. Okay, so you heard it here. It's not me. I'm. I'm. Yeah, you heard it here first, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe Jason can. I'll, I'll ask him next time when I'm recording with him. No, <laughs> um, we we could we could definitely do it as part of the BSD can auction. Yeah, that. Yeah, the audio tapes. A dollar, like. No, 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 no. Um, for every word of the BSD license you get correct, we will add a dollar. Oh, okay. That's a challenge, but it goes for a good, good cause, right? So yeah, it goes for a good cause. Mm. It doesn't go into my beer fund. <laughs> okay. Um, none of us all happened. Don't worry. Ever, this was all. Uh, this is just private brainstorming between me and Benedict. Nobody, nobody heard. So yeah, yeah. No, no, we're it. not listened by anyone. Just me and you. Yeah. No one, no one heard. Um, next up, we have a blog post. This blog in the URL. It's a blog post by um, Sagar Ya. Um, and this satire, by the way. Uh, it's from 2020. Why we, a uh, famous company, um, it's dollar famous company, but I'm not going to read a lot of punctuation. Why we, a famous company, switched to hyped technology. <sighs> when famous company launched in 2010, it ran on a single server in Tech Bro Founders Garage. Since then, we've experienced explosive VC-funded growth, and today we have hundreds of millions of daily active users from all around the world accessing our products from mobile apps and on famouscompany.com. We've since made a couple of panic-induced changes to our backend to manage technical debt, usually right after a high-profile outage, to keep our servers from keeling over. Our existing technology stack has served us well all these years, but as we seek to grow further, it's clear that a complete rewrite of our application is something which will somehow prevent us from losing $2 billion a year on customer acquisition. As we've mentioned in previous blog posts, the famous company backend has historically been developed in unremarkable language and architected on top of practical open source framework. To, see our unique, to, suit, to suit our unique needs, we designed an open sourced and engineered token mythology class, a highly available just-in-time compiler for unremarkable language. Even with our custom runtime, however, we eventually began seeing sporadic spikes in our 99th percentile latency statistics, which grew ever more pronounced as we scaled up to handle increasing DAU count. Luckily, all of our software is designed from the ground up for introspectability and using, scored out, some BPS scripts who copied from Brendan Gregg's website, our in-house profiling tools, famous company engineers determined that the performance bottlenecks were a result of time spent in the garbage collector. Initially, we tried messing with some gar garbage collector parameters we didn't really understand, but to our surprise, that didn't magically solve our problems. So instead, we disabled garbage collector altogether. This increased our memory usage, but our automatic on-demand scheduler handled this for us, as the graph below shows. Provision more instances! AWS, AWS. Ultimately, however, our decision to switch was driven by our difficulty in hiring new talent for unremarkable language, despite it being taught in dozens of universities across the United States. Our blog posts on practical open source frameworks seem to get fewer upvotes when posted on Reddit as well, cementing our conviction that our technology stack was now legacy code. We knew we needed to find something we could keep up with 
us at famous company scale. We evaluated a number, a number of promising alternatives that we selected and ranked based on how many bullet points they had on their websites. <laughs> how often they appeared on the front page of Hacker News and a spreadsheet of important language characteristics, performance, efficiency, community, ease of use, that we had people in the office fill out. After careful consideration, we settled on re-architecting our platform to use flashy language and hype technology. Not only is flashy language popular according to the Stack Overflow developer survey, it's also cross-platform. We're using it to re-implement our mobile apps as well. Rewriting our core infrastructure was fairly straightforward. As we have more engineers than we could possibly ever need, or even know what to do with, we simply put a freeze on handling bug reports and shifted our effort to typed technology instead. We originally had some trouble with adapting some of Flashy Language's quirks and ran into a couple of bugs with type technology, but overall, the powerful new features let us remove some of the complexity that our previous solution had to handle. Deploying with changes without downtime required some careful planning, but this was not too difficult. We just hard-coded the status page to not update whenever we push new changes, keeping users guessing if our service was up or not. Managing incremental rollout was key. We aggressively A-B tested the new code, our internal study showed that gaslighting users by showing them a completely new interface once in a while and then switching back to the old one the next time and loaded a page increases user engagement. So we made sure to implement such a system based on a Medium article we found that had something to do with multi-armed bandits. With our rewrite now complete and rolled out to all of our customers, we think the effort has been a massive success for us and our team. We've measured our performance and you can see a summary of results below. Stonks. Every metric that matters to us has increased substantially from the rewrite. And we even identified some that were no longer relevant to us, such as number of bugs, user frustration, and maintenance cost. Today, we are making some of the code that we can afford to open source available on our GitHub page. It is useless by itself and is heavily tied to our infrastructure, but you can start to make us seem more relevant. It's often said that completely rewriting software is fraught with peril, but we at Famous Company like to take big bets, and it's clear this one is paid off handsomely. While we focused on our backend changes in this blog post, as we mentioned before, we're using flashy language in our mobile apps as well since we don't have the resources to write native applications for each platform. Unfortunately, uh, to, to increase lock-in, uh, these, these rewrites also mean we will be depreciating third-party APIs across our services. We know some of our users relied on these interfaces for accessibility reasons, but we at Famous Company are dedicated to improving our services for those with disabilities as long as you aren't using any sort of assistive technologies which no longer work at all with our apps. We hope that you inter internalize our company's anecdote as some sort of ground truth and show it to your company's CTO so they too can consider redesigning their architecture like we have done. We know you'll ignore the fact that you're not us and we have enough engineers and resources to do whatever we like, but the decision will ruin your startup. So it's not like we'll see your blog posts and experiences about experience with, hype, with hyped technology anytime soon. If you're not in a position to influence what your company uses, you can still bring it up for point scoring when next time a language war comes up. If you're reading this interested in hype technology, like we are, we are hiring. Be sure to check out our jobs page where there will be zero positions related to flashy language. Okay. I love it. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> has some familiarity to it. I love I love the checklist, Mark, because, yeah, that, that occurred once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not just once, but more, probably multiple times. Okay, Beastie Bits. Uh, recently, Fuzzdem has concluded. I wasn't there. Tom wasn't there. And I'm fairly sure Jason wasn't also there. But I gather there was a couple of 
um, beastie people there and they had a nice time. And here we have a talk. They have published the talks already because of the awesome crew at uh, Foslem doing that almost instantly. Uh, NetBSD 10, 30 years still going strong. That's from a talk. And I guess that's a good overview how NetBSD evolved and how it's doing at the moment and, you know, some histories in there. So check that out. Also, we found a Dracula theme using Bash Shell. Uh, so I'm not, this is on the FreeBSD forums, by the way. So I'm not all too keen on Dracula. I get the idea and the the history behind it. Um, but I'm more like a Tokyo night guy. So <laughs> if you're... Uh, what, what's, what's the background behind it? So apparently like, the author the had a hospital visit and a longer than expected one, apparently. And... After the procedure, he got a bit bored in his hotel, uh, not hotel room, in this, uh, you know, hospital room. And so he designed a new theme in the Dracula theme, because probably because of all the blood oh. around him in the hospital, I'm not sure. And so that's, uh, that got very popular because it's not just for uh, shells, but also for Vim or all the other editors. They all now have a Dracula theme. And um, yeah, maybe my view of dracula is a bit different one than the color scheme they have chosen there it's certainly uh, looking different than other themes but it's not my thing but definitely check it out you can now make your shell look a bit more colory nothing to do with vampires <laughs> if that's a word um coming from the open bsd journal on deadly.org straight from the pinning the fjords department we have theodorat is committed to current the remaining parts required to get pin syscalls working in anger and there were were three commits um the kernel will now read syscall pin syscall tables out of the pt syscalls in the main program or ldso um read pt open syscalls on libc and print the l flag for base programs or ldso being under pin syscalls enforcement this means, once again, that if you feel up to it, it is the time to grab your re most recent snapshot and test intensively, reporting back any problems or oddities. And I would concur that if you want to have working OpenBSD in the future, you should be testing current OpenBSD now, because that's how, how that you will find out if it works. Hmm. That, that's it. That's all I have to say. Okay. Yeah. Complete, so, complete saying. Always something new. And uh, that's a nice way on osnews.com. We found the first bits of a haiku compatibility layer for NetBSD. So uh, they say here, does anyone here remember Cosmo? C-O-S-M-O-E. Cosmo, Cosmoe, Cosmo, was an attempt to combine Haiku's API with the Linux kernel and related tools started in the early 2000s. The project eventually fizzled out now only an obscure footnote for BOS diehards such as myself. It seems, though, that the idea of combining the Haiku API with a mature Unix-like operating system refuses to die. And a few days ago, some of the NetBSD users' discussion lists, a developer by the name of Stefan picked up the baton. Some years ago, so this is the quote, some years ago I already started to work on compatibility layer for NetBSD and resumed working on it recently. I think a compatibility layer would mostly consist of kernel components and a custom libroot.so. I have created a libroot that provides functionality missing in libc and it should behave like the original one. It makes use of libc and libp thread, or 
yeah, libpthread at the moment, as well as syscalls of the kernel components. The source code can be found on GitHub, provides a link to it, of course. This is clearly, and this is the end of the quote, this is clearly an experimental project, but Stefan does note that he has had success running the Haiku IPC test programs, so it's definitely more than scribbles on a napkin. The attraction of this idea is clear too. Haiku API, but on a stable kernel with vastly superior hardware and device support. I'm not entirely sure if it's got live in it, but even if it doesn't, it's amazing work, and that in and of itself makes it a success. I I don't know why you would want this at all. I'm glad it's I'm, I'm glad it's occurring. Um, I guess you could get run Haiku and operate on architectures that never supported. Haiku's got quite good device support. It's doing okay. Okay, so maybe they are a bit too early to call it dead. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say Haiku's dead. Um, they're definitely doing a lot of development. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Can't deny that. Guess you could run Haiku apps and then run virtualization on NetBSD with and VVVM. Yeah, that's cool. yeah. You would Keeps if you, you do weirdness. the port, you would get a lot of things for free, basically, uh, or at least easier that NetBSD already supports and the many architectures they have. But I wouldn't know what other things you would get for that because I'm not too deep into Haiku. Uh, yeah, that yeah. seems to be it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that's always the problem when talking about Haiku is. Um, there are like phases of applications targeting haiku and so while there is a lot of stuff for haiku right now and there's like an app store and there's a there's there is a new web browser that came out last year um i don't know if you would want this on netbsd yeah i don't know i don't know where the balance lands i think it's really cool um i want to hear more stuff yeah if there's development going on then we'll of course less. be happy to report it here and give you updates and yeah, so we watch this space and give you something new. Uh, something new you may get between episodes is the BSD Now Telegram channel, which is BSD, uh, or so, sorry, t.me slash BSD Now. You get a little uh, capture to solve uh, what's Benedict's favorite uh, dessert. And then you, once you've solved that, then you're in. And it's sometimes very quiet and sometimes there's a discussion going on, which is good. That's and then... Yeah, that's not what the capture is. The capture is just reading some numbers <laughs> and people get it wrong. Oh, all the time. every yeah, every time someone joins, I'm like, you can do it. I believe in you, and they get it wrong. Mm. Um, someone just this week got it wrong because they put the number and then said, "I'm not a robot," and the robot refused to let them in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a robot, and it only wanted four numbers. And you, if you'd acted more like a robot, you would have gone. Yeah, it's um, it's the check for exactly this. The you failed the Turing test and, and, again. For for some reason, the Telegram is getting Patreon only shell scripts, and the Patreon's not getting any shell scripts. So maybe the maybe the shell scripts I write, which are just nonsense, could be. Yeah, maybe it's our shell script. Anyway, Telegram only shell script. Blame the shell script. <laughs> it, it it crashes. I don't. It hangs. I don't know why. But yeah, Telegram a Telegram only shell script. Um, so look in the Telegram. You too can see what I've been up to. Earn millions by Telegram shell scripting. Yeah. It's the new cool thing everyone should know. Uh, that's. Did you run the shell script I posted, Benedict? I actually didn't know that you could hook this up to Telegram to have the shell script behind. No, that. no, it's not a Telegram. I, I just, 
I've wrote a shell script, yeah. and then I I said here I wrote the shell script, and then I put it in the Telegram channel. Ah, okay. It's not like it's it's connected not the thing whole. behind the capture. Okay. So what I no, it's not like the last time we recorded this, and I spent two days really <laughs> assiduously not building a pager system, um, because I didn't want to do that. But I very nearly did. Yeah. Um, so what I no, like I just posted a shell script. Mm-hmm. What I played around with uh, in Telegram once is the bots that they can provide. They have a, a thing called the Bot Father that basically controls all these, and you can create your own bots with some functionality behind it. And I just wanted a bot that you know would notify me if some of the servers were crying for help, like in integration with the uh, monitoring system. But it didn't get very far. But I know you can create your own bots to do some actions on certain messages. Yeah, to hours of fun. Um, like listening to BSD now, which is, I guess, over for this week because we don't have anything more. Uh, check out any things that you liked in this article or in any articles that we have for further details. And of course, watch this space for next week's episode. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. This key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more.